0: Am I on? Okay, great. Well, welcome everyone. Glad to have all of you back after a little bit of a break that we had last week. Um, Thankful for each one of you and thankful that we could celebrate a week before Thanksgiving together as a group. Why don't I open our time with a word of prayer as we get back into the book of Genesis Father, it is the desire of our heart that we would turn our eyes to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that there are many, many things that are happening in our life. Perhaps some are here with the cares and burdens of this world, and perhaps they're in a difficult circumstance. Lord, would you help them to fix their eyes on Christ as we hear from his word? We pray that we would be encouraged, we would be challenged. But more than anything else, we would leave from here knowing that your name was honored and exalted. So speak to us through your word now, we pray. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Uh, it's surprising, but we are back in Genesis after almost a break of uh, five or six months maybe. As we were going through a series in the summer, and then we also got into the Book of Ruth, but we are back in the book of Genesis. We are in Genesis 21. You know, for those of us who are a part of the family of God, uh, for the one who is a child of God, God's word tells us that He's always at work in their life. Uh, for it is God who works in you both to will, uh, to work and to work for his good pleasure. There is never a moment in the life of a believer or a follower of Christ. There's never an event in his or her life. There is never an individual that is out of the plan of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul writes again in Romans 8, 28, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you're here today, if you're a child of God, uh, this is a great reminder that God is always at work in your life for your good and for his glory. We look back at our life and sometimes wonder, how can God use that particular mistake in my life, uh, that particular sin that I committed? How can God use that for good? Uh, Sometimes we wonder, how will anything God honoring come out of that circumstance, out of that sin? Uh, Some of us can look at our past and see the mess uh, that we have made with how we have lived and responded and thought and acted. And we ask ourselves, I don't see how this will work together for my good and for the glory of God. You our text today is going to remind us of the incredible and the amazing grace of God. Something that we were thinking about just a few minutes back. As he takes what we have done uh, to put his glory on display. And so I have titled our lesson for today, God's Grace in Action. God's Grace in Action. If I had to summarize our text for today, which is Genesis chapter 21, verse 8 to verse 21. If I had to summarize our lesson for tonight, it would be this. Our gracious and sovereign God works through our shortcomings To accomplish his purposes. Our gracious and sovereign God works through our shortcomings to accomplish his purposes. And how are we to respond to that? We are to marvel at his grace and submit to his plans. We are to marvel at his grace and submit to his plans. Now we are back in the book of Genesis after a long time. So let me just bring us up to speed with where we are Uh, Not starting in Genesis chapter 1, but starting with the life of Abraham. And believe it or not, we actually started the life of Abraham last November. Uh, So it's almost a year since we are back in his life, or almost 20 lessons into his life so far. If you have your Bibles, turn first to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. We'll quickly walk through his life and try to get to where we need to cover our text for today. Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, verse 26. That's the first time the name Abram is mentioned, or he's introduced to us. At that time, of course, he's called Abram, A B R A M. He's introduced to us in verse 26 as the son of Terah. Son of Terah. Verse 26. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. That's the first mention of Abram. Then in Genesis 12, look at the first three verses. God calls Abraham to leave his country, uh, to leave his relatives and to leave his father's house and go to the land that he will show him. Why? Because God intends to make a great nation out of Abraham. There is eventually also the promise of a land and the promise of a descendant. But that's how he begins Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to verse 3. At this stage of his life, Abraham is actually 75 years old. And Sarah is, or Sarai, is 65. Both obviously well past the age of childbearing. And through a series of events, God continues to remind Abraham of his promise. Then for the first time, if we were to, to turn to Genesis chapter 15, in verse 1, God tells Abraham that one who comes from his own body, he will be his heir. And that is Abram. Abram, you're going to have a a son. It's not that you're going to adopt a son. No, you're going to have a son yourself. He takes Abram out of his tent in those few initial first few verses in chapter 15. He shows him the stars and he says to him, that's how many descendants there will be coming out of you. Now this is, This is astounding, and it's more astounding what follows in verse 6. Notice a statement that we will find repeated throughout the scriptures. Verse 6, then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. God considered Abraham as righteous, someone who is worthy to stand in his presence. Not because something he did, but because God chose About 10 years pass from this event and Abram is now 85 years old and there is still no son. And so based on Sarai's recommendation in chapter 16, Hagar is introduced to us. Sarai recommends her. Abram takes as Sarai's maid Hagar as his wife. And the text tells us in verse 2 of chapter 16 that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, That itself is alarming. What is even more alarming is that there is no mention of Abraham seeking the wisdom and the guidance and the direction from God. And so for the initial first few times, we begin to see this great stalwart of the faith make a very rookie mistake. He fails to seek God and he fails to listen to God. Verse 4 in chapter 16 tells us that Abram sleeps with Hagar and she conceives. At least it's clear that the issue is not with Sarai. It's not with Abram. There might be an issue with Sarai not conceiving, but certainly not with Abram. And as soon as, soon as she conceives, we are told that Hagar despises Sarai, her mistress. And so Sarai treats her harshly. And therefore, Hagar flees from her presence. And when this happens, we read in the rest of the chapter that an angel of the Lord meets her and instructs her to return to her mistress and submit herself to her authority. And so that's what she does. And once she does that, a son is born to Hagar and his name is Ishmael, which means my God sees or God sees. In chapter 16 or 17, God renews his covenant with Abraham and there he also changes his name from Abraham to Abraham. Uh, Abraham means exalted father, Abraham means father of multitudes. He also establishes a sign of the covenant which is circumcision and God again promises Abraham a son and here he for the first time tells him that that son will come through Sarah her name also it changed from Sarai to Sarah and what does Abraham do notice verse 17 Abraham falls on his face and laughs uh, this is a laughter not of unbelief this is a laughter of surprise and astonishment an amazement and you shall call his name God tells him you shall call his name Isaac and I'm going to establish my covenant with him Yes, Ishmael is your son, but Isaac is going to be the son of promise. And it is with him that my covenant will be established. In chapter 18, God again promises Abraham a son. And this time, the timing is even more specific. We are told this time next year, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Notice verse 10 of chapter 18. I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. At this time, Abraham is not laughing, but Sarah is found laughing, verse 12. And her laughter is one of unbelief or disbelief. And so she is immediately confronted by the Lord for that. And this particular promise of a son is ultimately fulfilled in the chapter that we're looking at today. We looked at it last time when we met about the birth of Isaac. What does that show? That shows that God is a faithful God, The God that you and I believe in is a faithful God. He's a promise-keeping God. His promises never fail. And we see that the promise of a son is being fulfilled in Genesis chapter 21. We saw that last time, verse 1 to verse 7. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old, verse 5, chapter 21. God has made a laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me, uh, That is, that everyone will rejoice with me. Isaac means one who laughs or one who rejoices. Uh, this theme of laughter is running throughout these last few chapters that we have seen. What else do we see? We see God is a gracious God. Abraham did nothing to deserve the call that we saw him being called to in chapter 12... In chapter 11, he did nothing to deserve all the wealth and honor he has received. He did nothing to deserve a child at the age of 100. Those are some things you want to think about as we think about this particular text that is in front of us. So let's begin to read from Genesis 21. In Genesis 21, in the verse, seven verses, we saw Isaac's birth. Sarah conceives and she bears Isaac, or gives birth to Isaac. Isaac. We pick up in verse 8. The child, that is Isaac, grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. And therefore she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. First of all, as we think of God's grace in action, we see God's special grace in action. God's special grace in action action. Notice with me a few things. Not much time is spent in the initial few weeks and months of Isaac's life. In verse 7 we're told that he was born that he was there perhaps he was just a newborn baby in verse 7 and then verse 8 we're told that the child grew and was weaned. Uh, This is the first indication in the text of how old Isaac must have been. Now ancient documents tell us that this age of weaning could be anywhere between two to five years of age for the child. But typically this was three-year-old child where he or she transitioned from liquid food to solid food. Isaac, in that sense, is no longer dependent on his mother for nourishment. He can now eat and digest solid food. This is a great turning point in his life. You know, at a time, think about Abraham, at a time when many were sitting and enjoying retirement benefits, Abraham has a son and this son has crossed a significant milestone in his growth and so this is a cause for celebration and so Abraham throws a party verse, uh, verse 8. He made a great feast on that day on the day that this transition takes place and so Isaac has now moved to the next stage of his growth. Uh, This is also why we celebrate things such as birthdays. I mean, we celebrate a year being added to a person's life. But what we do in the physical realm, we also do in the spiritual realm. I'm reminded of our discipleship program, Partners One-on-One. When that last session is done with your partner, what do you do? You you celebrate. Uh, Some of you have coffee together. Or you give a gift to that individual who has poured And poured himself or herself into your life. You're thankful. So you ought to celebrate your spiritual milestones. Even as we celebrate a physical milestone in Isaac's life. Now it's most likely that it is at this great feast. That an event takes place that determines the trajectory of Hagar and of Ishmael. Notice verse 9. Sarah sees the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, the one that she had borne to Abraham, and what is he doing? He's mocking. Uh, The word mocking finds its root in the same word as laughing. Uh, We saw earlier Abraham falling on his face and laughing out of surprise and amazement that he's going to have a son at the age of 100. Uh, We saw Sarah laughing out of unbelief for which she was confronted and then we see the name of the son that they have, Isaac, which means the one who laughs. And we now have Ishmael mocking. He's laughing in jest. He is mocking, he's making fun or he's poking fun at Isaac. Now what he did exactly is not known. It's not told to us in the scriptures. Uh, the word in Hebrew is in a form that is called piel. P-I-E-L. Which is something that is an intensive form of a Hebrew verb its repetitive and its active form. For example, take the word break. Something falls on the ground and breaks. In its normal form, it would be, we would say, that thing fell on the ground and it broke. But the PL of that particular word is that it shattered, it broke into many pieces. That's the difference between laughing and mocking. So mocking is in the intensive, repetitive, active form. If you want to know more about that word, that same word is also used in Genesis 19.4. Remember that story? We covered that. It describes Lot who is attempting to warn his family. And what did it seem to them? To, to them it seemed like he was jesting or he was mocking. That's Genesis 19. The same word is used in Genesis twenty-six, verse eight, where Isaac is playing with or he's caressing his wife Rebekah. The same word also appears in Genesis 39, verse 14 and 17, where Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of mocking her. In each case, the action that is taking place is being misrepresented. Now, How do we, why do I say that? You know, Lot seemed to be mocking to his family because his current words differed from his previous one. Isaac seemed to be playing because what he was doing with Rebecca did not align with his previous statement. And what was his previous statement? We haven't reached that stage here. But his previous statement was that Rebecca is my sister. And what he was doing with his sister didn't jive with what he said he was to her. And in the case of Joseph, the accusation against him differs from what he was known for. He was known for a good character. And so you can see the word mocking has to do with being misrepresented, And the mocking, the way that it is used here, conveys the idea of playing with someone, trifling with them. And it points to a deception that if left unchecked would prove harmful. Unless you think I'm trying to pull out of the text something that is not there, why don't we turn to Galatians chapter 4. Paul actually quotes this particular incidence and notice what Paul says about Ishmael's actions. Galatians chapter four, verse 29. Verse 29, and as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, and who is that? That is Ishmael. He who was born according to the flesh, Notice what Paul says. Persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. That is Isaac. And so it is now also. Uh, Paul is describing Ishmael's actions as persecution. Now what is persecution? To persecute someone is to chase them away. It's to drive them away. It's to put them to flight. Usually it's used in a hostile sense. In Ishmael's attitude toward Isaac, what Sarah saw was not someone laughing laughing at another person, but an attitude that was full of malice. One that is looking to chase away the real heir and put himself in his place. Someone that she could not foresee being under the same roof with. Again, we don't know exactly what Ishmael was doing, but whatever he was doing, he was looking to usurp the role and position that Isaac had or will have had in the family. Alan Ross, writing about this particular incident, says, in Genesis 21, then the laughter was the response of faith to the promise of God, but the mockery that was displayed by Ishmael signified the response of unbelief In God's plan that Isaac should be the heir. Well put. Because that's what he was doing. With his actions. He was trying to usurp the role that Isaac would have played as an heir. And so what does Sarah do? Notice verse 10. Sarah says to Abraham drive out. Chase away this maid and her son. She doesn't even name her. She says drive them away. And here we have a hint of what Ishmael may be doing with Isaac. She says, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. So what does Abraham respond? How does he respond to Sarah's idea? Well, this time the matter, it says, distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. It grieved him. It displeased him and saddened him. It displeased him because Ishmael was not just Hagar's son, he was also Abraham's son. And by this time, going by the ages that I've mentioned earlier, probably Ishmael is around 17 or 18 years old. So he spent a lot of time with him. If you were to put your sanctified imagination on, let's say with an American twist to it, you know, Abraham may have hunted with his son. He may have thrown the ball to his son, or played ball with him. Whatever it is, it seems that Abraham had a good relationship with Ishmael. He may have done things that a father and a son do away from the nurturing and caring eyes of the mother. And you can't help but think that there is a strong relationship there. That's why Sarah's request comes to him as a shock, as a surprise. In fact, if you were to go to that culture, what she was requesting or asking Abraham to do was also against the culture. No wonder he is distressed. It's here that God again interrupts the story. Notice verse 12. It's not surprising that God is back in the picture and God has to intervene to reassure Abraham something. Notice verse 12. Don't be distressed, Abraham. Don't be saddened because of what Sarah is asking you to do to the lad and to your maid. Notice God does not, does not even mention their names, but he does mention Sarah and Isaac. And this time he says, whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. Why? Because it is through Isaac that your descendants shall be named at the end of verse 12. It is through Isaac that my promises to you will be fulfilled. You know, last time you listened to Sarah's idea of taking Hagar, you did not seek me, you did it without seeking me, but I, now, I'm going to work through your shortcomings, I'm going to work through your mistakes, I'm going to work through your mess to bring about blessings in your life. For through Isaac, your, name, your descendants shall be named. Now that word descendants, although it's translated here as plural, can also be understood as Singular. And although not explicitly stated here, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16 that that descendant that God had in mind was the Lord Jesus Christ. My plan, Abraham, is to bring a descendant through Isaac, the descendant in the immediate context that would be Jacob, but in the ultimate context, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. But what Sarah is telling you to do is in perfect alignment with my plan and with my purposes. My plan is to bring through Isaac, a descendant who will, through his life, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, he will accomplish the salvation for his people. And so I want you to do what Sarah is telling you to do. Now let me just stop here and draw some lessons for us as we think about God's special grace in action. What can we learn? First of all, understand that faith and unbelief ...are incompatible. Faith and unbelief are incompatible. You cannot in the same breath repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ... ...as your Lord and Savior and then act as if his words, his commands... ...do not matter. Faith and unbelief cannot exist... ...under the same roof. They are antithetical to each other... ...or what we can call oxymoronic. Doesn't make sense. You cannot say with your mouth that Jesus is my Lord and then act as if someone else has authority over your life. Uh, You you cannot say that you're a believer when you're here on a Sunday or a Wednesday night and live as if you're an unbeliever throughout the week. You cannot sing praises to the God of the Bible on one day and live the rest of the day singing praises to other idols. Now, this is not Isagesis on my part. Paul actually refers to this chapter, as I mentioned And this incidence in Galatians 4. And he says, Abraham had two sons. One was by the bond woman and the other by the free woman. If you're still there, turn to, not there, turn to Galatians chapter 4. Notice verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the born woman... And one by the free woman, but the son uh, by the bond woman was born according to the flesh, and that is Ishmael. And the son by the free woman through the promise, and that is Isaac. Uh, this is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants: one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. Uh, But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Go down to verse 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bond woman, but of the free woman. If you're here and if you have placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're no longer a son of the bond woman, but you're a son or a daughter of uh, of the free woman. What a relief that is to know that we are no longer under bondage, but we are free, set free by the Lord Jesus Christ. What this is then telling me is faith and unbelief are incompatible. They cannot live under the same roof. But secondly, it is also telling us that we are to remove from our life that which trifles with God's work. Or for faith to prosper in your life for you to experience the kind of life God called you to live and to lead, you need to remove, you need to eliminate from your life everything that trifles with his work. If you know that you're struggling with a particular sin, and you know what the trigger for that particular sin is, perhaps it's a location, perhaps it's a particular friend in your life, and you know, or, or an acquaintance, and you know that when you get in touch with them, that it leads you to temptation, what this text is telling me is that we, are going, we, are, we need to remove it from our life. We need to cast it out. We need to eliminate it from our life. That's what Paul calls putting off. That which interferes with God's work in your life needs to be eliminated so that your faith can prosper, so that your faith can grow. And Sarah, in telling Abraham you need to drive them away, you need to cast them out of here, is an act, a spiritual act as well, reminding us that not only that faith and unbelief are incompatible, that we are to remove from our life that which trifles with God's work. And thirdly and finally, it's also a great text to remind ourselves that we're to marvel at God's special grace in our life. What we're seeing here is God in agreement with Sarah. Overtly, it seems that Sarah is doing this, really, for some sinister purposes herself. She's, she's upset. She's angry that the son of her maid is making fun of her son. So she wants him and his mother expelled, although Ishmael also was a result of her idea. Remember, it was she who had proposed to Abraham to take Hagar as his wife, and out of that union came Ishmael. But even through that mess, we see God working for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. He sees this mess that Abraham and Sarah have put themselves into, and he's working in their life to bring about his plans and purposes for his good pleasure. Now we see his special grace in action, a grace that brings good from the bad, a grace that looks forward to the coming of the Messiah through whom he plans to bring redemption uh, to his people, a grace that is undeserved, a grace that is amazing and sufficient. So just pause and marvel at God's grace in your own life. Do we really think that it was because of our beauty, our good looks, our ability to communicate, the family that we were born in, our skills, our gifts, is that what made God redeem us? (laughs) Absolutely not. It was his grace alone. He is a gracious God. He is a merciful and gracious God, one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so we are not to express our thankfulness only During November, when there is thanksgiving, no, we are to live our life as an outpouring of thankfulness to this great God. You see God's grace, his special grace in action. That brings us, secondly, to God's common grace in action, verse 13 to verse 21. You know, God's word repeatedly tells us that in providing redemption through his son, we see his special grace in action. But we're going to see also his common grace in action, in everyday things of this life. His grace, common grace, what is common grace? His grace that is applicable and extended to both the regenerate and the unregenerate. Both to the believer and to the unbeliever. Both to the one that calls on his name and calls him as their Lord and Savior. And also to the one who rejects him as Lord and Savior. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, that great Sermon on the Mount, our Lord reminds us, he says, for he that is God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Psalm 145, verse 9 says, the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. Every breath that a godless man or a godless woman takes is an example of the mercy of the holy God. Luke 6.35, the Lord says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. You will be the sons of the most high. When you do these things, you're acting like God. And what does he do? For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. He's a kind God. His grace extends to those who don't even call on him. Someone has said to be an atheist is, to like, is, to, is compared to sitting on God's lap and slapping him on his face. Even the breath that the atheist takes in is grace from God, his common grace. And it is the common grace that we see on display here as you notice verse 13. Genesis chapter 21 verse 13. And of the son of the maid I will make a nation also because he is your descendants. Notice that God promises Abraham... That even the son that you have had through your maid, notice no mention of the name of Ishmael. It's interesting that in this entire section, which is actually triggered by Ishmael, there's not a single time that his name is mentioned here. Notice what he says, the son of the maid. I will make a nation also through him. A nation will come. I will bless him. Why? Because he is your descendant, Abraham. What an amazing God this is. I'm going to bless Ishmael, even though he's not a part of my plan to bring redemption to this world. I'm going to bless him because he is your descendant, Abraham. And so, verse 14 so Abraham rose early in the morning. He took some bread and a skin of water that is a water container that is made up of animal skin, hides, and he sends Hagar and Ishmael away. We know that she's from Egypt, so the only Way perhaps she knows is the way that she came up from Egypt, so that's the way she takes uh, We know from some maps how the kind of route she must have taken uh, the place that looks like a excuse me place that like, looks like a house is where it's written Hebron that's where Abraham is and she takes the route that takes her south and then eastward so Abraham rises early gives her bread and water and she's on her way but she departs and well the text tells us that she wanders in the desert of Beersheba this is a desert remember this is wilderness and so water is going to be in short supply and when it's over there's no more water for them uh, perhaps then what we read in verse 15 onwards we are reminded that the lad faints of dehydration and she leaves him under one of the bushes because she recognizes that if this continues and there's no water for them he's going to die and she so she goes and sits under uh, she sits a distance away from him. That is a bow shot away, which is about 80 yards or so. Because she cannot bear to see her son die. And that's where we are, verse 16. There's an impending death of her son that brings her sorrow. And what, what does she do? She lifts up her voice and she weeps. Just as amazingly as God entered the previous crisis when Abraham was distressed we see him now entering this crisis as well. Notice verse 17. And God heard the lad crying. It's, it, it's interesting that the text tells us that it's not because of Hagar's crying or weeping that the Lord responded. No, it's the lad's cry that he hears and responds. And here we are told in verse 17 that the, God heard the lad crying, but it was the angel of God who responds to Hagar, It says the angel of God called to Hagar. The word there for God is the word Elohim, which means the powerful one, the one who created everything by his power and by his word. Now It's interesting that the angel of Elohim is mentioned here, but previously when a similar kind of incident happened in Hagar's life in Genesis 16, we are told that it was the angel of the Lord who had intervened, that is Yahweh, Yahweh, as we know, is the covenantal name of God, the personal name of God. It's used every time. It's used in connection with promises to Israel. So what that tells me is that as long as Hagar was under the authority of Abraham and Sarah, it was as if she was also a part of the covenant. And as soon as she departs now, there is no covenantal name of God being used. It's Elohim, a general name of God. It's the same God, but a change in name tells us the relationship now has changed with Hagar. He meets her and he also reveals to her what he had revealed earlier to Abraham. And what is that? Don't fear Hagar. Verse 17 at the end, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. He's not even a part of the covenant. He's not the son of the promise. He hasn't done anything to earn or deserve being made into a great nation, and yet he will be made a great nation. You know, many of us have grown up in godly homes where the Word of God was regularly shared with us, it was read and and taught to us. We heard the gospel for a long, long time. Others, perhaps not so blessed to have grown up in godly homes, uh, but Perhaps heard the gospel in school or college. As I think back at my own background, I wonder, I don't really wonder, I know for sure it's God's grace, but what what did I do to earn or deserve such blessings from God? Answer, nothing. You know, most of us are single here, and um, statistics, I know that's what we like to hear. Statistics tell us that about 90% of you are one day going to get married. What a great opportunity for you to set up a home and give a godly foundation if God gives, were to give you children. Even if you were not to give you children, what a great opportunity for you to be involved in the life of the body of Christ and to influence the next generation for Christ. What did they do to deserve that? Answer, nothing. And then we are told that he opened her eyes. Verse 19 Amazingly, she now sees a well of water, a great picture of illumination. Perhaps the well of water was there, but her eyes were closed. And now God opens her eyes and she sees a well of water. She fills the container and gives it to the lad and he survives. That brings us to the last two verses in this chapter. Notice verse 20 and 21. God was with the lad and he grew And he lived in the wilderness and he became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now these last two verses are like an epilogue to this whole section. We're reminded again of the great God that we have. He's a living God. He's active in this world that he has created. He hears the lad cry that we saw already He opens the eyes of Hagar that we saw him doing in verse 19 so that she sees the well of water. And now we are told God was with the lad, verse 20. He's a God who hears. He's a God who opens the eyes. And he's a God who is present. He is with Ishmael. And what is the result of God's presence? Notice verse 20. And the lad grew. The lad that is Ishmael grew. This section, remember, began with Isaac's growth story. It began with verse 8. Notice the child that is Isaac grew. And now we are told about Ishmael's growth. He lives in the wilderness along with his mother and he becomes an archer. The reference to the Borshot earlier in verse 16 is perhaps to prepare us for uh, us as readers to remind us of what God intended to do for Ishmael, that he wanted him to become an archer. And then we are told in verse 21, he lived in the wilderness of Paran. His mother took a wife for him, which was fairly common in that part of the world for parents to be involved in the life of their children in this way. And she took a wife from her own people, from the land of Egypt. And he grew there. You know, God was true to the promise that he had made to Hagar. The lad survived and he flourished. And the next time we hear of Ishmael is in Genesis chapter 25, where he shows up for Abraham's funeral. And there we are told that Ishmael actually has 12 sons. And so God has been true to his promise in blessing Ishmael, God's common grace. You know, we're not told if either Hagar... Or Ishmael were believers. That's why I've called this section his common grace. So based on their choice for where they ended up living and who Ishmael married, we can only assume that as far as this chapter is concerned, they're not believers. That's why the title that this is God's common grace. What have we learned? We've seen God's grace in action. We've learned that God's special grace extends to his children. And God's common grace extends to all people everywhere throughout the centuries. He is a gracious God. I want to pick some more lessons from this chapter. First of all, be thankful for the patience of God. You see, in displaying his common grace to people, God is actually demonstrating his patience towards them. If you're here today, and if you have not placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, What God is doing with you is that he is being patient with you. Isn't it Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 9, he says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You hear, you're listening to this message, and you have not yet placed your trust in Christ. What that means to you is that God has been patient with you. You see, his desire for you is that you come to him, that you repent of your sins, and that you place your trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in writing to Timothy, he says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our savior, because he desires something. And what does he desire? Verse four of First Timothy chapter two, he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What a gracious God we have. He's a God who is ready to forgive, And he is a God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So when is a good day to be saved? (laughs) Today. Today is a good day to be saved. His word tells us now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. You see, we see in God's common grace, his patience towards those who have not yet placed their trust and hope in Christ Jesus. But there's another thing that I want us to learn from this section. You see, God was weaning Abraham, and he intends to wean you. You might say, what? Isn't it Isaac who was weaning? Yes, we began with the weaning of Isaac, But beginning in this section, chapter 21, this particular section, chapter 21, verse 8 onwards, we also see the weaning of Abraham. What do I mean by weaning? By weaning, I mean removing, erasing, eradicating things from Abraham's life that will slow his progress as a believer. In other words, God intends for Abraham to grow in his walk with him. He is preparing him for what he will face Are you ready for this in the next chapter? In this chapter, God grew Abraham by removing Ishmael from him. That's why Abraham is distressed. Because you see, in the next chapter, God is going to test Abraham's faith. Not for God's sake, but for Abraham's sake. And if Ishmael was still with Abraham, and God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, what do you think Abraham is going to say to himself? Okay, Lord, you can take Isaac, but I still have got Ishmael back home. He would be tempted to say to himself, Lord, you can take Isaac away, but I still got another son back in my tent. And so by removing Ishmael from the scene, God is taking away everything from Abraham's life that will tempt him to keep going back to the former life. And by doing that, God is helping Abraham to be totally... And completely dependent on him. Because you see the godly life. The holy life. Is the life that is completely and totally dependent on God. And God alone. Can that be said of you and me? Can that be said that so and so. Is completely and totally dependent on God. Can that be said of you today, uh, that he or she is completely and totally dependent on God. If God is removing something from your life, look back at this story as he removed Ishmael from Abraham's life to teach Abraham to be completely and totally dependent on him. You know, if you're a child of God, God is committed to help you grow. He will wean you from people and things that are drawing you away from You know, one of the first things I ask couples that are intending to date is do you think that the other person is helping you to be more godly or is he or she helping you to be less godly? It's a difficult process to wean people and situations and circumstances that, that we've gone in our life into. But notice from this chapter, this section, that God does that for your good and for his glory. We close our time in a word of prayer as we get into small groups. Father, thank you for this reminder from your word. You're such a gracious God. You give us things that we don't deserve. As we reflect on that, keep us humble. A great reminder this chapter is that faith and unbelief cannot remain under the same roof. And so if there are inconsistencies in our own life, individuals, things that we are doing, are are involved in, that don't line up with what your word says we should be doing and thinking, Lord, would you take those away from our life? Lord, would you help us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us? Would you help us to conform and conform us to the image of your Son? That is our desire, Lord, and we know that this desire is in line with your will for our life. And when we pray according to your will, you hear us and you answer. And so, Father, we pray that you would remove everything in our life that is holding us back from becoming like your son. I pray for someone here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior. Would you draw them closer to yourself? Your word tells us that those who draw close to you, that you do draw close to them. And to save them even tonight. Do pray for our small group's time, Lord. I pray that you would be honored and exalted through it all. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.